Stand with me if you would open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, and then we're going to continue our series, um, Exiles, as we continue to learn what it looks like to live in and navigate a world to which we do not belong. Our citizenship is in heaven, and um, we look there for a savior, and we long for the day that he returns. But until then, we are here, and uh, we are told that we are to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, and uh, we're trying to learn what that looks like. How do we live as exiles in a world to which we do not belong? Let me just piggyback on what Paula said. Uh, Last night was a great night. We actually had, I think, about 66 folks here, and about 40 of them, 37 or 38, had not been back yet. And And uh, it was really great to see them come back. And so uh, we're excited about that. We just want uh, everyone who wants to be here to to be here. And so um, I appreciate our staff being willing to do that. And if we fill it up and you bring lots of guests, we'll have another one if we need to. We just want people to be able to worship and feel safe at the same time. First Peter chapter three and verse eight. Finally, all of you be of one mind. Having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against all those who do evil. Father, thank you for the promise that you will hold us fast. Thank you for the promise that he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High abides under the shadow of the Almighty. And thank you because your word is alive, powerful, and true. I ask, Lord, in these few moments that remain, that uh, you would speak to our hearts, challenge us, help us to learn what it means to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, how to shine like bright lights in a very dark universe. Speak through me today, God, anoint me, not because I've worked hard to earn it, and certainly not because I have merited or deserved it. But because I need it, would you anoint me that I might speak your word with power, authority, and clarity. Change our hearts and transform us in these moments that we share together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's turn around and wave at somebody across the aisle from you and greet the person next to you. And uh, then you may be seated. You may be seated this morning. Maybe one of my uh, all-time favorite authors, uh, many of you will know this name, a 19th century South African pastor and author by the name of Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray has written many, many, or wrote many books, um, wrote a lot about prayer, and um, most of his books are pretty small little books. They're quick reads, but powerful truth. It is a little work called With Christ in the School of Prayer that I think we actually have it uh, in our Family Resource Center. Murray wrote these words. He said this, my relationship with God is part of my relationship with men. Failure in one 
will cause failure with the other. Uh, what, what he is saying is, if I am not right with others horizontally, then I cannot be right with God vertically. We have a responsibility before God, and we've been talking about this over the last several weeks. We have a responsibility as a church and as the people of God to uphold truth, to make certain that we live it, that we preach it, that we teach the truth of God's word. But we also have a very strong and a very real responsibility to love our neighbors as we love our own self. In Leadership Journal, David Johnson wrote this. It's a powerful little illustration. He says that sodium is an extremely active element that is found naturally in combined form. Sodium always links itself to another element. Now, chlorine, on the other hand, is the poisonous gas that gives bleach its offensive odor. But when sodium and chlorine are combined, the result is sodium chloride, which is common table salt. It's the substance that we use to preserve meats and to bring out the flavor in meats. And then Johnson makes this statement, love and truth can be like sodium and chlorine. Love without truth can be flighty. It can be blind. It can be willing to combine with other doctrines. But on the other hand, truth by itself can be offensive, sometimes even poisonous. Spoken without love, truth can push people away and turn them away from the gospel. But when love and truth are combined in an individual or in a church, we have what Jesus calls the salt of the earth. And we are able to preserve and bring out the beauty of our faith. The last several weeks, I have really drummed home the importance of truth, holding up truth. The Bible says, Paul said to Timothy, that the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. We are to hold it up. But that truth must always be spoken in love. Otherwise, it will drive people away and can hurt them and leave them unwilling to even hear the gospel. This text calls us to a loving relationship with those who are part of the body of Christ, brothers and sisters, and also to a world that is standing against biblical truth. It's a very practical text. It soars with relevant and pertinent truth. It tells us how to live as exiles in a world to which we don't belong and look very different from the world. I'm not going to surprise any of you when I say this, or I'm not going to tell you something you don't already know. Our world is full of hate right now, ugly rhetoric, anxiety, fear. But the church, the salt of the earth and the light of the world needs to look different than that anxious, fearful, hateful world in which we find ourselves navigating. So what are we called to do specifically? Let me read to you the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. And this comes from the New Living Translation. Do everything without complaining and arguing. First of all, how many could have lived the rest of your life without hearing that Bible verse, right? All right, do everything without complaining and arguing so that nobody can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, 
Here's the phrase I want you to see. Shining, this is what we're supposed to do. Shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to shine like bright lights in a dark and perverse and crooked world. So what does it look like? What does it look like to shine like bright lights in relationship with one another and with a world that is rejecting the gospel? Let's begin by being bright lights within the body of Christ. We need to get that right. We need to make certain that we have relationships with other believers that are right. Here's what Peter says. It really doesn't get any simpler than this. And I can't, I I can't even make it difficult. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted and be courteous. There you go. That's how we are supposed to be within the body of Christ. There are five imperative adjectives that are used in the Greek here in this text. In the middle of these imperative adjectives is the word love. It is philadelphos. It's where we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Here are the five imperatives. Be of one mind, have compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous. The first and the last speak of how we think. The second and fourth speak of how we feel. Sandwiched in between is that we are to love as brothers. When relationships within the church, within the body of Christ are not wholesome, we will have no, listen to me, no attractive feature to a lost world. They're not interested in a church where those who love, say they love one another cannot even get along. That's not, never going to attract a lost world if we cannot even within ourselves live as God has told us to live. Robbie Zacharias, probably the greatest apologist, maybe of all time, certainly of our time. He just passed two months ago. He recounts a story that he found in Marie Chapion's book called Of Whom the World Was Not Worthy. And this book follows the Yugoslavian Christian church's suffering under a corrupt political church hierarchy. Uh, they, the, the true believers were were persecuted by the church hierarchy of Yugoslavia. He tells the story, or she tells the story, of an evangelist by the name of Jacob. And Jacob went to Yugoslavia, and he arrived in a particular village. And he began to commiserate with an elderly man whose name was Simmerman. And they began to talk about the tragedies that he had experienced. And Jacob tried to talk to Simmerman about the love of Christ. Simmerman abruptly interrupted Jacob and told him, I want nothing to do with Christianity. Don't talk to me about it. I want nothing to do with it whatsoever. And he reminded, reminded Jacob of some of the horrible experiences that he and his family had experienced. He talked about the dreadful history of the church right there in his own village, a history replete with exploitation and and plundering and the killing of innocent people. As a matter of fact, Mr. Zimmerman said, my own nephew was killed by those who said they were Christians. And he angrily rebuffed any time that Jacob tried to speak to him 
about the love of Christ. He went on to say, Mr. Zimmerman, these Christians, they wore these elaborate coats and these big crosses around their neck. And it tried to tell everyone it was a symbol of their heavenly commission. But their evil designs and lives, he said, I cannot ignore them. I want nothing to do with Jesus. Jacob, wanting desperately to share with this man the love of Jesus, tried to change his line of thinking by using an analogy. He said, Simmerman, um, let me ask you a question. Suppose I stole your coat. I put it on and I broke into a bank. I robbed the bank. Suppose further that the police sighted me wearing your coat, running in a distance, but they could not catch up with me. But one clue they had that got them onto your track was that they recognized your coats. What would you say to them if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into the bank? I would deny it, said Simmerman. Ah, but we saw your coat, they would say. This analogy annoyed Simmerman, and he was angry, and he told Jacob to leave. I don't want to hear about Christ. And so Jacob left. He returned to the village periodically just to try to befriend Simmerman. He decided he couldn't talk to him about Jesus anymore. His heart was too hard. His mind was made up. And so he would return, and he would try to share Christ's love through action and deed. Finally, after doing this for several months, Simmerman said to Jacob, tell me, if you would, how does one become a Christian? Jacob taught him the simple steps of repentance for sin and trust in the work of Christ. And he gently pointed him to the shepherd of his soul. Simmerman bent his knee on the soil and with his head bowed, he surrendered his life to Christ. As he rose to his feet, he wiped tears from his eyes and he embraced Jacob. And he said to him, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens and he whispered, you wear his coat very well. As I thought about that story, I thought about how poorly Christians for so long have worn the coat of Christ. We have not worn it well as a church as a whole, especially in America. And we're not living it all that well right now as a church in this nation. How do we wear the coat of Christ well? Peter gives us five things. Let me just mention them to you, each of them rather briefly. Number one, we are to live harmoniously with one another. Be of one mind, he said. To live harmoniously with one another or to be unified is not uniformity. I talk about this often. I've used this illustration many times, but when I was a teenager, I worked at Burger King and we had to wear those brown polyester slacks and those really rough shirts that were polyester, brown and orange and and red, and everybody put on one of those ugly hats. Anybody remember those days in the 80s? All right. Any, anybody else work at Burger King? Anybody? Uh, Dave Helms, of course. Dave and I worked at, yes. And Dave's sister was actually my boss. And we, we wore these ugly uniforms. It didn't matter how handsome you might be or how ugly you might have been. Everybody wearing the uniform looked equally bad. You know what I'm talking about? Because we were uniform. All right. Everybody looked alike. That's not what the Bible calls us to. It calls us to unity. 
not uniformity. We don't all have to look alike. We don't all have to think alike. I guarantee you there are people in this room that have differing opinions on every imaginable subject. God doesn't call us to uniformity. He calls us to unity, to live harmoniously in our differences with one another. We're called to share the same basic aim with believers, which is to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. We're to work well together. We're to serve one another. Because we're not uniform, we all have differing gifts. And we're to use those gifts to serve other people that are not like us so that the body can be even more harmonious. This is not some external rule that conforms us, but it is an internal life of Christ living within us. Alan Redpath, you see it on the second part of that screen. If you'll back up one screen, Alan Redpath said this, the secret of every discord in Christian homes and communities and churches is that we seek our own way and our own glory. That's the problem. We want my way. We want my glory. We're to live harmoniously with one another if we are going to shine as bright lights in a dark world. Number two, we are to have compassion for one another. To have compassion for those who are hurting. This is to enter into someone else's experience. The word compassion is the Greek word sympathrace. It's where we get sympathy or to sympathize. We are to sympathrace one another. We are to have compassion with one another. We are to feel the pain that they are experiencing. We're to weep when they weep. We're to mourn when they mourn. It's what Christ does for us. How many are glad that when we are suffering, Jesus feels our infirmities? He, He sympathizes, he empathizes, he enters into our pain with us. Now listen, this doesn't guarantee that we understand what other people are going through. It doesn't mean that I know exactly what somebody else has experienced. It means that I enter into that experience with them. You've all heard other preachers and myself talk about Job and Job's three friends. Job's three friends... The only time they were giving him good advice was when they were saying nothing. You know that story? I mean, the best advice they gave is when they sat with him and just felt his pain. Once they started talking, they just messed everything up. I remember my 20s when I was pastoring and I'd get a call and have to go to the emergency room and someone had been in an accident and killed and I had to sit with a family and talk to them or I remember particularly one day when an elderly man passed of a heart attack and I was sitting with the family and they came out to tell the family and I wanted to be the answer man. I wanted to give them an answer, tell them why that happened, explain to them so that everything would be good. And I realized very quickly, they're not looking for answers. There are no answers. This is a broken world. There's painful things that happen. What they were looking for is someone to sit with them to enter into their pain, just to feel it with them, to empathize, to sympathize, to have sympathy with them. Our world would be so much better today if Christians would take the lead and we would talk with people that we may not be like and we may not have their experiences, but hear their experience. Let them hear ours sympathize with their pain, mourn when they mourn. We may not understand it. We may not even agree with it, but sympathize with them so that we can have the kind of compassion and sympathrace that Peter says we are to have. 
if we're going to shine like lights in a dark world. Thirdly, we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love as brothers. This was to be the mark. Love was to be the mark that would set Christians apart. Remember when Jesus, the night that he is betrayed and ultimately crucified, remember while the disciples are arguing about who the greatest guy in the kingdom is going to be, Jesus gets up from the table and they don't even recognize that he's doing it. And he gets up and he takes his outer garment off and he girds himself with a towel and he fills a basin with water and he starts washing their feet. Remember that? This is the night, the greatest one was the one washing their feet. The one who's going to give his life life for them is the one washing their feet. And they're still arguing and caught up in their own stuff. And then Jesus says to them, a new commandment, a new mandatum. That's what Monday Thursday, by the way, is all about. That's where the mandatum is, Monday. A new mandate I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you by this. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. That's what marks us as Christians. Not what news agency we watch, not what political party we affirm. What marks us as Christians is if we have love one for another. Somebody say amen if you believe that. This love is to deepen and to mature as we grow in Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 and 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit, look at this, you've already done this in sincere love of the brethren. I want you to love one another fervently. In other words, Peter said, I want you to ramp up that love. I want it to mature even more. You see, the ideal, listen, the ideal Christian community is one that produces between people the kind of bond between people that aren't really related, that is expected between those who are really related by blood. That's the kind of ideal community that will shine a light in a dark world. When you start caring for somebody over here and you care about what they're hurting with and broken with and you care about their needs and you want to reach out to them and the world starts seeing that, that's something our world is not seeing right now. That's the kind of love that will shine a bright light into a dark world. Philip Yancey says this, for the watching world, let me just stop. Look right here for just a moment. The world is watching. How many believe that to be true? The world is watching. And unfortunately, what they're finding most of us do is argue in social media and all of that kind of stuff. And listen, I am speaking as one who loves to have the last word and loves to jump on and try to make everybody believe what I believe. I struggle with that too. The world is watching. And if they would see us love one another, the world is watching. To the watching world, we ourselves can serve proof that God is alive. We form the visible shape of what he is like. How desperately our world needs to see the church being what God has called us to be. Are we doing that? Are we wearing, are we wearing this coat well? Fourthly, we are to be tenderhearted. This is one I'm sure that will get me raving reviews by the time I'm done with this. We're to be tenderhearted. This is compassion, but it's beyond compassion. It's beyond sympathy. It's not just doing the right action. It's feeling the right action. 
It's tender-hearted. It's not tender-doing. It's not just, well, I have to, so I'll do it. It is tender-hearted. This word has to do with the struggles and the failures. Listen to me, of others, not just their crisis moments. It's, it's easy to rush into someone's crisis. When things have fallen apart and, 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 and their world is kind of crumbling, it's easy to run there and help them. But what about when they have made their own mess? What about when their own failures got them where they are? What about when they have hurt you and offended you and their failure has cost them something? Are you tenderhearted toward them? Tenderheartedness is a demonstration of grace that rolls out of a heart that has received grace. How many have received the grace of Jesus Christ? Raise your hand. How many of you did not deserve the grace of Jesus Christ? We are called, since we have freely received, we are called to freely give that same grace, even if the offense is directed at us. Be kind to one another. Ephesians 4.32 be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ, God in Christ, forgave you. Anne Lamott, this is one you're going to want to remember. Forgiveness means it finally becomes unimportant for you to hit back. Forgiveness means it finally becomes unimportant to hit back. You don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how they betrayed me. You don't know how wrong they are. You don't know how they hurt me. You know, we can, we can treat that person okay, but what are we doing when we're on our own? What are we feeling? What are we rolling our eyes when they see them? We see them do something. What kind of little sly remark? We're still hitting back. You will know you have forgiven when it's no longer important to hit back. How many need the help of Jesus to do that? We need the help of, that's what it's calling us to. Tenderhearted. It's how we wear the coat of Christ well and courteous, number five. Courteous means to be selfless, to be lowly minded. It speaks of humility. This is knowing your abilities and strengths, but you're playing them down. You're not tooting your own horn. There is a courteousness, a selflessness about you. It's a humility that is displayed or is to be displayed by Christ followers. Robert Morinow said this. What is humility? This is a powerful statement. What is humility? It is the habitual. That means you do it regularly. Quality. Whereby we live in the truth of things. So what is the truth of things? The truth is that we are creatures. We're not the creator. The truth is that our life is a composite of good and evil, light and darkness. The truth is that in our littleness, we have been given extravagant dignity. Let me stop. The truth about us is we're just paltry jars of clay that God created. The truth is, yes, there's some good things about us, but there's some bad stuff about us. 
The truth is there's a lot of good that, that emerges from us and there's some evil that emerges from us. The truth is that God has given us a dignity we never deserved. That's why David said, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that you visited him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. Not because we deserved it, but God in his grace has given us dignity. Humility says, any dignity I have, God gave to me. And so because of that, humility is a radical yes. It's saying a radical yes to the human condition. I will live with an awareness that there's some good, but there's some evil. There are some abilities and there are some failures. There is a dignity, but I don't deserve it. God gave it to me. And so therefore I live courteously. I don't toot my own horn. I walk in humility. That's how we wear our coat well. Let me move to the second and third point very quickly. So that's how we are lights in a dark world in the body of Christ. But how do we, how do we become bright lights to the world? Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this so that you may inherit a blessing. Let me make this really simple. Everybody just look right here for just a moment. Christians are not to repay evil with evil. We are not to respond to ugliness with ugliness. We are not to fire words of hate at those who have fired words of hate toward us. If people treat you badly, you are not to pay them back with the same coin. In ancient history, God said to Israel, I don't want you taking revenge. When somebody hurts you, when somebody steals something from you, I don't want you walking in their house and stealing something back. And so I'm going to create the law and a system of justice. And that system of justice is to handle those wrongs because God didn't want anybody turned loose to get vengeance on their own. God says, vengeance is mine. That is not our responsibility. So Jesus taught us those things that are not covered by community justice, listen, are to be overlooked. If the justice system doesn't handle it, if the law doesn't handle it, and we are hurt, we are to overlook it as Christians. Let me, I, I feel like I'm freaking some of you out thinking this is just way too, too much to try to live this way. That's why we are exiles, folks. We don't belong to this world. We have been, tra- I've been trained for 56 years by the world, not by my parents, not by the church, but by the world. If somebody treats me back to fire back, to be stronger than them, to be tougher than them, that's what the world teaches us, but that's not what the Bible teaches us. Amen, Pastor Kevin, that is good preaching, man. Sometimes you got to tell yourself, you all aren't getting it. You understand what I'm talking about? This is, this is hard. We've not been called to live just a little better than the world. We've been called to live like Jesus. You shouldn't have signed up if you didn't want to live like Jesus. Don't say he's my Lord and I'm going to follow him anywhere if you have no interest in doing what he says to do. I want to make Jesus Lord, but I don't want to forgive somebody that hurts me. That, they don't work. Amen again, Pastor Kevin. You guys are really excited. Christians are not to repay evil with evil. Jesus taught those things not covered by community justice were to be overlooked. It is especially true 
if it is a result of following Christ. That's why we have the example of Jesus. For what credit is it if when you're beaten for your own faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, that's commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Remember the word example that we talked about a few weeks ago? It's the word that was used when kids would cut out letters to practice writing their letters. We are to follow the example of Jesus and to follow in his steps. When he walks, we walk there. That you should follow in his steps. Not only, look at me for just a moment, not only are we told not to repay evil for evil, we are called to bless those who mistreat us. That's right. Don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. On the contrary, the opposite of. None of this, well, they had it coming. No, not if you're a Christian. What they have coming is a blessing from you. You are to bless them. The Greek word is eulogia. It's where we get eulogy. When you eulogize someone, you speak well of them. You speak kind words about them. So when someone treats you wrong or offends you or hurts you, you don't fire back. You speak well over them. You bless them. It's what the uh, patriarchs did. Abraham blessed his family. Remember when Jacob had all of his sons around his deathbed and he laid his hands on them and he blessed them. He, he eulogized them. He spoke good words over them. It's what the priest would do. The priest would stand and say, the Lord bless you and keep you. Speaking well over. First Peter 2.9 says, you are a chosen generation. You, we are a royal priesthood. We're supposed to be speaking blessing over people, even those who hurt us. What a powerfully concrete way to forgive someone. You speak well of them. If your kids hurt you, you bless them. If your spouse offends you, you bless them. If your friend hurts you, you don't hurt back, you bless them. If your work associate treats you wrong, you bless them. If someone in the world offends you, you bless them. Our friend Jonah failed that test twice. God said, Jonah, I want you to go and preach to the Ninevites. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Syria was the wicked, wicked, atrocity-ridden people that were the enemies of Israel. They, would, they, they, they did all kinds of atrocious things when they, when they would take over nations, and they were brutal. But God said, I want you to go to them and preach to them. And Jonah said, uh-uh, they're my enemy, and I am not about to go preach to my enemy. And so he hopped on a boat and headed the other direction. Well, the God who loved him enough to go after him. How many are thankful God loves us enough to go after us even when we go the other direction? The God who loved him prepared a storm. Anybody ever been in a storm that God prepared for you to get you back on track? He prepared one for Jonah. And there was he's on this boat and the storm comes and the guys on the ship didn't hear about any storm that was supposed to be coming. This was the weirdest thing. It just popped up in the middle of the day and, and they're trying to figure out what to do and they're, you know, they're screaming and hollering at their gods, praying that their gods would stop the storm. They want to know who offended their gods to cause this storm and they're throwing luggage over the side and finally Jonah says, guys, I need to confess. The only reason we're having this storm is because I am not being obedient to God. You throw me over, 
it'll stop. So they threw him over and it stopped. And um, God that prepared a storm prepared a big fish. And the big fish, I'm not going to ask you how many of you have had God prepare a big fish for you, but maybe that's happened too. But God prepared a big fish, swallowed Jonah, and he spent three days getting right with God. And then that fish spit him up on the side of the shore. And okay, reluctantly, he heads to Nineveh and he preaches. Tells them that God loves them. If they'll repent, he'll forgive them. Hoping like crazy they will not repent because he doesn't like them. And they repent. And God says, I'm not going to judge them. And now he's ticked off. Now he's really ticked off because he was obedient to God. He didn't really want to be obedient to God, but he was obedient to God after spending three days in the belly of a big fish. And now he preaches and they repent. And he goes out and he sits under the sun, mad and pouting. He's failed test one. And he pouts and he's, he's actually failed test two because God has forgiven them. He's angry and he's mad. And the God that prepared a storm and the God that prepared a, uh, a big fish, he's hot and the sun is beating down on his bald head. God prepared a gourd. And the gourd grew and he has shade finally. And finally, my luck is turning. And Jonah is all excited. Okay, it's a really lousy day, but at least my head is not being fried. And then God prepared a worm. And the worm ate the roots of the gourd. And poof, there goes the shade. And now he is really, really angry. The end of the book of Jonah is God schooling Jonah, saying, Jonah, you didn't do anything. You didn't, you didn't work, you didn't dig, you didn't plant that gourd. You have nothing to do with that. And you're angry because it's gone. Don't I have the right to care about thousands of people in Nineveh that are created with the Imago Dei, some of them children that don't know their right hand from the left hand, God was saying, Job, get over your sorry self. That's what God was saying. Look at it. It's translated that way. Get over your sorry self, Job. Get over it. You see, God has called us to bless. We don't know what Job did with that. That's how the book ends. We're just kind of left like, what if Job finally got his act together? And I think God ended it that way because he wants us to wrestle with that ourselves. Are we going to respond and say, you're right, God. I need to love my enemies. I need to bless those. Number three, um, and I'll be done. Being bright lights by walking in his blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that is to bless, so that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is watching. That's what that says. God's watching. God will bless those who instead of cursing their enemies will bless them. Let me give you six reasons. They're not on the screen, so you may want to jot them down. They're all pretty short. Six reasons why we bless. This is why we should bless those who curse us. Number one, it is simply the way of a Jesus follower. That's just what followers of Jesus do. Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who curse you. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you can try to find a loophole if you want and say, I'm not going to forgive, but you're not going to find one. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to bless those who curse you. It's the Jesus way. Number two, 
Not only is it the way of a Jesus follower, God's grace is long-suffering to those who hate us and speak evil against us. In other words, if God's grace is long-suffering toward them, shouldn't ours be as well? How many are thankful that God's grace is long-suffering toward us? It's also long-suffering toward the person that hurt you. And so you bless them. Number three, if you want to skip the other five and be really selfish and choose this one, you can. You ought to want to bless people because when you bless people, you get a blessing. That's why This is how you inherit a blessing. Now, I'm not suggesting that you get all selfish and then you have to deal with God about the sin of selfishness. I'm just saying, if you don't like any of the other five, take this one. You will inherit a blessing if you will bless those who curse you. Number four, isn't this true? Words of grace and patience always produce more fruit and goodness than words of anger and hate. You ever seen anybody with their hateful rhetoric on Facebook change anybody's mind? And at the end of this hateful rhetoric, the one person on the end of the hateful rhetoric says, I love you so much. You never see that happen. Doesn't happen. Words of grace and patience produce more fruit and goodness than words of anger. Number five, we break the cycle of hatred and bitterness. It needs to be broken. And number six, and I'm done, we shine a bright light into a dark world. How many would agree the world's pretty dark right now? It's just dark, folks. It's as dark as I can remember it being. I'm sure it's not the worst it's ever been. It's as dark as I ever remember it being. You can even sense a darkness among people. There's a fear. There's an anxiety. And too many Christians have become too sidetracked. Too sidetracked with too many other things other than the most important thing. And that is to shine a light in the darkness. You know, on the back of our iPhones, we push that little flashlight button. And that little tiny, that little tiny light can light up a whole lot. I... Uh, I got my socks this morning uh, with that bright light. The room was dark and I flipped that little button and I got my socks and they're brown like my pants. So otherwise I might've ended up with something else. Bright light, just a little light can really brighten up a dark room. Look at me for just a moment. The Republicans or the Democrats or the Libertarians are not going to shine a bright light in the dark world. Neither is CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News. They're not in the business of shining bright lights into a dark world. That's what we've been called to do. And if we abandon our post, who's going to shine light in this darkness? It's not going to get done. It's going to stay dark. I want you to stand with me, but I want you to hold steady. Let me read to you this story. I'll read it quickly. It's a story that was found in the uh, catacombs of Rome. It was retold in modern English, but here's the story. Here's how it goes. There was a rich man by the name of Proculus, a very wealthy man who owned many slaves. Proculus had hundreds of slaves, but he had one particular one by the name of Paulus, who was his most trustworthy slave. So trustworthy that Proculus made Paulus the steward over the whole house. One day Proculus said, hey, we're, we're going to go to the market. 
I'm going to go to town and we're going to get some more slaves. I want you to go with me. I want you to help me choose the very best ones. So Paulus went with Proculus and they examined all the men to see who the strong and healthy ones were, looking for the ones that had the, the best biceps and the strongest legs that could really carry the work. And among all those slaves, listen, among all those slaves stood this really weak, old, emaciated, skinny man, skin just hanging from his bones. Paulus said, Proculus, buy him. Proculus, what are we talking about by him? He's good for nothing. Go ahead, buy him, Paulus said. He insisted. He said, he's cheap, number one. And I promise you, sir, I promise you that the work will get done better than it's ever been done if you will buy that old man. So Proculus trusted Paulus and he agreed and he purchased the elderly slave. And Paulus made good on his word. The work went better than ever. More was accomplished. Things were more efficient. They were cleaner. But Proculus watched and he observed that Paulus now did the work for two men. And the old slave did no work at all. Proculus watched as Paulus hurried himself around the house, did all the work and tended to the old man giving him the best food and insisting that he rest. Procula was was so curious, he finally confronted Paulus and he said, who is this slave? I need to know. Who is this guy? You know I value you. I don't mind you protecting this old man. But I need you to tell me, who is he? Is he your father? who fell into slavery late in his life. Is that why you are so moved toward him and protecting him? And Paulus said, it is someone to whom I owe more than my father. Must be your teacher then, Proculus said to Paulus. No, somebody to whom I owe even more. Who then, Proculus said. Paulus said, this is my enemy. Proculus said, your enemy? Yes, he is the man who killed my father and sold us the children as slaves. Proculus stood speechless. As for me, said Paulus, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ who has taught us to love our enemies and to reward evil with good. He bore the coat of Christ really well. How well are we wearing his coats? Paul said, you have not so learned Christ if indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you have put off concerning your former conduct, put off the old man grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness the word of God is calling us to put on the new man to put on the coat of Christ and to wear that coat well bow your heads with me if you would possibly you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life 
say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. I'm not serving him. My heart is not right with him. But today I want to know him. Today I want to serve him. Today I want to give my life to him. Would you pray for me? Is there anyone in this room who would just raise a hand and say, would you pray for me? I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ. Anyone in this place? Let me ask a second question with heads still bowed. How many would say this? Hear me out before you raise your hand. I have not always worn the coat of Christ very well. But with God's help, I want to I wear that coat well. I want to love my enemies. I want to forgive. I want to let go of bitterness and hurt. And I want to shine a bright light in a dark world. How many would raise your hand with me and say, that's my desire. Father, help us to wear your coat well. We come before you today and we ask for your forgiveness. We have failed you. We have not always forgiven when you've called us to. We've not always blessed when we've been cursed. But today, Holy Spirit, you are challenging us to do just that. I thank you for conviction because conviction leads us to restoration. And now we come before you and we ask that you would cleanse us forgive us. You would restore us so that we can shine a bright light into a dark world, just as I am.